Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Is Hamilton's Catholic school board ready for a return to the virtual classroom? One expert says gasoline prices could reach as high as $1.65 a liter this year. Why has Bob Young sold a portion of the Tiger Cats and Forge FC to Stelco? A new report shows a job divide in Ontario. The Bank of Canada continues to mull over the adoption of a digital currency. And tennis star Novak Djokovic has received a medical exemption to play in the Aussie Open. And it's drawn a lot of criticism. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Virtual learning back in action today across the province of Ontario as we're back into a modified stage two of uh, the province's COVID-19 reopening plan. And uh, we got to discuss remote learning here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML because it is, uh, as I said, back and an important element of uh, the uh, the education process now that we're no longer uh, allowed to have our, our students and teachers in the school system at least until January 17th and hopefully by that day uh, we're able to get back into the class. So how is the Hamilton Wentworth Catholic District School Board preparing for the return to the virtual classroom? Let's ask our next guest. He's the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth Catholic District School Board, Patrick Daly. He joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Pat, how are you? Oh, good, Rick. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for joining us this morning. Is uh, the Catholic Board ready for today's return to virtual learning? Yeah, thanks to the um, heroic work of staff right across our system. Yes, uh, I believe we are. There will clearly be, you know, some um, initial challenges, I'm sure, perhaps in particular uh, classrooms or or schools. But uh, overall, yes, I I think... uh, our staff are ready and uh, really looking forward to welcoming students back. There wasn't a lot of lead time to get prepared for uh, what is now returned to virtual learning. What, what was the last few days like in terms of planning, uh, coordination, all that stuff? Yeah, I think what was most challenging, Rick, was the the announcement with regard to uh, you know Monday, Tuesday, uh, being days off, additional days off for students and then returning in person uh, today. And then, you know, the change on Monday really uh, caused uh, a tremendous amount of work uh, for our staff. So people have been working very, very hard over the weekend and uh, uh, right up uh, until this morning to ensure that uh, parents are well-informed, staff are well-informed and students uh, have the equipment uh, necessary to learn. So it's been, uh, for sure, a challenge, but I, I know that our staff has uh, risen to the occasion. That's good to hear. Um, certainly not a popular decision to go back to the virtual classroom when it comes to students and, and parents. What have you heard from students, parents, and even teachers now that we're back in this uh, modified stage two? Yeah, I, I heard uh, sort of a, a mix of, you know, sort of my own views uh, on the matter. Our board has clearly believed, uh, you know, that in-person learning is the best for students and students should be, as some have said, you know, uh, the last to close and the first to open. So I've received a number of emails, you know, raising real, real concern with the uh, additional two week closure. But at the same time, uh, I received some where there's relief by uh, parents or staff that the children will not be uh, returning in the current environment with the level of uh, positivity uh, regarding uh, the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. So uh, I think uh, roughly split down the middle, at least the the comments that I've received, those that are very concerned that their children won't be returning and those that are relieved. 
From those who are concerned, does it boil down to their children's mental health or does it come with the education component as well that, you know, they just don't learn as well virtually? Yeah, I think you've uh, all of the issues you've raised clearly like school boards, uh, uh, you know, share with staff and parents are real concerned about students' uh, mental health and well-being. Uh, no question in terms of the isolation and, you know, those uh, factors that come about in terms of remote learning. But as well, uh, you know, as hard as our staff work, you know, we really believe that nothing can replace in-person learning. So there would be that concern by parents that, you know, the uh, academics is perhaps not the same. Uh, and uh, some, obviously, the extracurricular, co-curricular activities, which are very, as you know, very well important in a young person's life, whether it's sports or the arts, they're missing out on that. So uh, a whole wide range of issues why parents are concerned tonight. And I just want to tell parents that we share those concerns. Patrick Daly is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Daly is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board, and we are discussing the return to remote learning for students here in Hamilton and across the province. What is your message to parents and their kids? Yeah, our message first would be one that uh, we understand for them, and uh, I would add for our staff, that these have been unprecedented, complex, and extremely challenging times for them and uh, I don't pretend to understand you know all of the disruption in their lives my wife and our children are all adults now so we don't have uh, you know four children uh, you know in elementary or secondary school but clearly uh, we really have empathy for what this has caused in their family lives and uh, the disruption uh, that the you know, back and forth remote in-person learning has caused. The other thing I would say is uh, really to understand how hard staff are working. Clearly, nothing will ever be perfect, but I want to assure them that their classroom teacher, their educational assistant, principal, vice principal, support staff, everyone is working as hard as they can to provide the highest quality education possible during these challenging times. Yeah, and we shouldn't ignore the night, the the plight of teachers as well. They're certainly going through um, some drastic changes. You know, all those um, lesson plans have been thrown out the door, at least modified to uh, to incorporate them into a virtual landscape. How how are teachers and and their support staff and uh, custodians, everyone in the mix? How are they coping? Yeah, for sure, as you say, Rick. Like lots of other sectors of our society, throughout this, uh, it's been ab- difficult for sure. I have to really praise the cooperation collaboration of our employee group representatives uh, they have worked very very hard with us to, uh, you know to uh, meet the needs uh, of our staff and, and you raise a great point and i've tried to remind myself uh, uh, and i would remind many parents that lots of our staff you know whether teachers custodians educational systems whoever they have uh, many of them young children at home themselves so they're taking care of their children at home while teaching a class or uh, you know serving as educational assistants whatever so absolutely it's been a challenge i don't say that to in any way uh, you know diminish the challenge for others whether it's in healthcare or uh, in all other parts uh, of our society but for sure this has been you know extraordinary challenging for staff last one for you do you expect virtual learning to continue after january 17th I hope not. I mean, my real hope and prayer 
is that we can return as quickly as possible. Saying that, uh, I think anyone that uh, were to uh, predict would be wrong for doing that. We are uh, hoping and, uh, you know, whatever advocacy efforts we have at the provincial level advocating for a return, but, uh, you know, these decisions are left to public health and, uh, and provincial uh, government officials. So we hope so, but uh, uh, either way, you know, we'll do the best we can to serve our students. Mr. Daly, appreciate the time today. Good luck with virtual learning. Thank you, Rick. Take care. Patrick Daly is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board, joining us as virtual learning is back in effect in Hamilton and throughout the provinces. We're back into a modified stage two in this province. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. How high could the price of gasoline get in Canada this year? Now, right now it's about dollar forty or so, buck thirty-eight here in Hamilton. One expert says the price of gasoline could reach a new all-time record high in 2022. <laughs> no. Dan McTagg is his name. He's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning and Happy New Year, Dan. And Happy New Year to you, Rick. Good to be here. You're quoted as saying, quote, by the end of February to June, there will be a 25% increase in the price of gasoline. Say it ain't so. Say you're just joking around. Yeah, I wish I was. In fact, uh, I mentioned that to uh, Vancouver, uh, uh, your uh, CKNW out there, your affiliate, and um uh, no sooner did I say that, I had to call them back to say, guess what, tomorrow morning in Vancouver, you're going to $1.71.9. Uh, so it's, um, y- look, we we obviously live in very strange times with everything with Omicron, with the fourth wave, um, with the supply chains being challenged, and of course, uh, uh, with a lot of uh, the reality, I think, for many, that demand is going to come back uh, in, a, in, a, in a furious way uh, to make up and compensate for two or three years of, uh, you know, of what has been very sluggish uh, economic growth, uh, it's all starting to come back together. No matter how we slice it, it looks like we're in a situation, Rick, where uh, there just isn't enough oil to go around. Uh, and I'm not saying uh, crunch or shortage. Of course, we can produce more, but it becomes uh, a bit of a challenge when getting investment to produce more oil uh, and, of course, uh, ma- managing ever-increasing regulations makes it uh, quite a challenge for many countries. And uh, for North America, for instance, uh, we're short a million and a half barrels a day. So what it means is that oil is going to probably go to 90 bucks a barrel. That's good for about a 15 to 20 cent a liter increase in of itself. So on a day like today, by the way, Rick, where we're paying, what, 141.9 at most stations, of course, it'll drop seven or eight cents in the afternoon at some of those same stations. We're looking at yet another penny increase tomorrow. It's going to be a very expensive uh, beginning of uh, certainly the first half of 2022, starting at the, as I said earlier, uh, at the uh, the end of February all the way to the beginning of June. Yesterday we heard uh, OPEC and its allies have approved a $400,000 barrel-a-day increase scheduled for February. Is that going to have any impact? No, because the global uh, shortage is 2.3 million barrels a day. And you don't have to go very far to figure that out. Uh, at about 10.30 this morning, the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy releases its uh, oil inventory report it will show that from the pre-COVID period when the United States was producing about 13.1 million barrels a day, uh, and by the way, uh, they, they use about 21 million barrels a day, so you know that's a third of that has to be made up by things like Canadian oil. Um, 
what they've what they're now producing is about 11.7 million barrels a day. In other words, they're short 1.4 million barrels from their peak production, and it means that as demand surges, there just isn't enough supply. And the only way in which you can meet that, uh, you know, that surge is to uh, is to see prices reflect, you know, uh, fundamentals, the so-called supply and demand. And that price will have an impact. I think probably later in the year we will see things get back to normal. But before that happens. Uh, we're heading to record territory, and we scratched that territory just about a month and a half ago, uh, around Thanksgiving, uh, when we saw gas prices push to a dollar fifty here in uh, in uh, Hamilton and uh, the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area. So, why is there a supply issue? I mean, we don't have as many planes, I would suspect, in the air because of uh, you know COVID. Um, there's restrictions, so maybe people aren't you know driving to work as much. So, why what's going on with the supply? Well, demand is, is back really to where it was before. I know it's sort of counterintuitive uh, when you hear about flights being canceled in the United States because of temperatures or because of uh, storms or because of fears of Omicron. Um, but the United States is using just about as much oil as it did pre, uh, you know, pre-COVID. Uh, and there's an expectation that that will go much higher as the world rebounds and uh, that uh, that demand that's been sort of held back for a couple of years uh, gets uh, gets met. There's another factor, though. Um, you know, back on, and I'm going to circle this date, April 20th, 2020, oil sold, that's West Texas Intermediate, for minus 37.63 a barrel. That's because producers had overproduced, didn't realize these lockdowns were creating the problem they did. They couldn't shut down their, their facilities, and there was no storage for oil. A lot of producers have uh, have learned from that experience not to overproduce because there could be yet another wave. Who knew uh, a month and a half ago that we'd have uh, a fourth wave? Is there going to be a fifth, a sixth, or seventh? So that's the one thing. There's a lot of nervousness among producers not to overproduce. And then there's the final one, which is a real one. You know, we've talked about uh, you know in environmental, social, and governance. You hear it on commercials. You hear every company jumping on this. What it's doing is depriving, uh, specifically, U.S. Uh, oil producers, the, the ones that brought about the energy independence in the United States, the so-called frackers and shale players. They're now, they can't get financing, and a lot of them can't produce any oil, and so there's the shortfall. Um, as long as we continue to have investors looking away from oil and gas, uh, you're going to create this scenario of really an energy super bubble, the likes of which we've never seen before, in which demand continues to surge in no woke capitalists don't want to invest in it, the reality is that uh, the world wants more, not less. Uh, Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We've got about a minute, and I want to focus on another quote you have. By 2024, all hell will break loose. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing here uh, is a scenario where the federal government is including uh, and increasing uh, it's carbon taxes. Uh, we know every year two and a half cents a liter. By the way, in 2023, it goes up by three and a half cents a liter. They're accelerating that to $170 a ton. Bottom line, you're paying 8.84 cents a liter. It'll go up by uh, 2.21 on April the 1st. Uh, following year, April 1st, 2023, it goes up by three cents all the way to 2030. Then they introduced the clean fuel standard, the second carbon tax. And that really is a carbon credit market. Don't want to get too complicated about that. At the end of the day, that's trading for 18 cents a liter. When you add both those taxes together on top of what happens with oil going to $100 a barrel, yeah, all hell will break loose. And uh, I think consumers are going to, uh, there will be a backlash because there's no alternative. Not even electric cars at 70 to 100,000 bucks uh, a pop. Wow. Can't wait for that. Dan, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for the time today. Uh, enjoy Take the rest care. of your day.
You too. Bye-bye. That's Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. As uh, he expects gas prices at some point in 2022 to hit a buck You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Why has Bob Young sold off a portion of the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Forge FC to Stelco? Well, let's ask the guy himself. Bob Young is majority owner of the newly created Hamilton Sports Group and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning and Happy New Year, Bob. Hey, good morning, Rick, and congratulations on your new morning show. I, uh, I get to brag to my friends, I knew Rick when. <laughs> well, likewise. I mean, <laughs> you've hosted a Grey Cup and have been to a bunch of them. We're still waiting for that win. Hopefully that comes in 2022. Um, why this move, yeah. and why this move now? Okay, so uh, the uh, my worry, the reason I got involved, now let's make it a positive, uh, the reason I got involved with the Ticats is, is I'm a lifelong Ticat fan, uh, and and uh, to see the Ticats run into financial difficulties was, was as painful for me as it was for all, all the rest of us uh, Hamiltonians and Tiger Cat fans. Uh, and so when I got involved, my mission wasn't to own the Ticats. That, that had never occurred to me. Uh, my mission was maybe with my business background, I could actually, you know, contribute something back to my hometown. And what I wanted to contribute was turning the Ticats into a, a better business so that they wouldn't run into these kind of financial difficulties uh, and and with Scott Mitchell and Doug Rye and Matt Afneck and the rest of the team, we've actually done a very good job with that. And now, how do we uh, how do we ensure the success of the team going forward? And the problem with a single owner of a sports team is that team is only as stable as that one owner's uh, position in the it, it, it might be. You know. Uh, and uh, I could make funny jokes about where I might end up, but, but the point being, by bringing Stelco in, by making uh, Scott Mitchell a, 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 a shareholder in this business, by bringing in a smart guy like Jim Lawson into the business, and by partnering with Stelco and their uh, visionary CEO, Alan Kestenbaum, uh, just the team is in so much more stable a position for future growth and expansion uh, than we were with just me uh, being involved in it. You're, you're quoted as saying, my goal as caretaker has been to ensure our teams prosper for at least another 153 years, which obviously leads to a succession plan in all of this. The question begs, how much longer do you see yourself in this current role or involved with the team? Well, I remain the largest single shareholder in the team. Uh, I, I love the Ticats. I, I love our new Forge uh, Canadian Premier League project because uh, I'm an entrepreneur. So startups uh, are kind of what get me out of bed in the morning. Uh, so, no, I have uh, no short or intermediate or even long-term plans to uh, to step away from this project. I, I see this as nothing but an expansion of the project. We've heard that up to 40% has been uh, handed over to Stelco. Is that correct? And would you care to share the price tag? No. Uh, no and no. Rick, <laughs> I, I, I respect you for asking the question, uh, but the, the pleasure always of running uh, private businesses is the business details of it remain our responsibility. Uh, yes, 
you are going to, uh, so I'll, I'll let you get your green pencil out uh, when uh, Stelco next reports their results, because as a public company, Stelco may have to divulge uh, some of the, that information or information in a way that you could figure it out. Uh, but uh, no, I, I enjoy, uh, enjoy is the wrong word. We're very responsible to uh, maintain as much flexibility uh, in future as we can by keeping our you know, corporate information uh, as, as uh, discreet as we can keep it. Fair enough. I respect that. Uh, I'm up against the clock, so i got to let you go, but I appreciate your time. Um, congrats on a, a great 2021. It didn't end up with a trophy at the end for either the football or the soccer teams, but they certainly represented the city of Hamilton uh, very, very well. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Rick, we'll get them next time. Thank you. That's for sure. Bob Young, majority owner of Hamilton Sports Group, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hey, there's a new report out this morning that looks at job growth in this province, and it uncovers a pretty big divide. Where does Hamilton rank in comparison to the national average and even other Ontario cities? Well, let's find out. Steve LaFleur is a senior policy analyst with the Fraser Institute and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what did your report find? Well, what we found is that between 2008 and 2019, um, basically in, in the aftermath of the, of the Great Recession, um, a lot of Ontario has recovered. And we see that in provincial-wide statistics. But what we noticed as well is that a lot of parts that aren't in or around the GTA and Ottawa really didn't come back. And in fact, some parts never recovered. So do we know why? Well, there are a lot of potential reasons. Um, First of all, I'll just say uh, we looked at 2008 to 2019. We excluded 2020 and 21 for the obvious reason that the data is just all over the place. Um, Obviously, covid really uh, changed a lot of things and it's really not fair to judge a place based on how well it did in the last year or two. Um, So one of the things that happened is uh, some parts of the province that are very dependent on manufacturing had a hard time and a lot of uh, smaller centers that um, for instance that aren't city-sized really had a hard time in particular. Now did you expect to see this kind of uh, data coming back? Well uh, given the challenges that a lot of Ontario manufacturing has had, it's not surprising. But there are also uh, there are also other factors to consider. For instance, because Toronto and uh, the GTA um, ha- and places like Guelph and Kitchener Waterloo um, that have you know taken advantage of uh, technology industry, for instance, and and other uh, advanced manufacturing, et cetera, have done so well. Um, a lot of the areas around there have also benefited. So Hamilton being, uh, kind of in that area has certainly helped Hamilton quite a bit. Um, but then you think about places that are further from, from that economic activity and they've had a lot more challenges. You think about some parts of Northern and Eastern Ontario, for instance, um, they just haven't really enjoyed the same growth that we've seen in and around the GTA and Ottawa. Steve LaFleur is our guest. He's a senior policy analyst with the Fraser Institute. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about a new report that looks at job growth in this province and looking at the employment growth uh, in the graph 2008 to uh, to 2019. Uh, the GTA, Barrie, uh, number one and two, uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, Cambridge, Ottawa region round out the top four. Those are all over 15%. 
Um, then you have that next cluster of Branford, Guelph, Hamilton, and then you get to the Canadian average, and then you know, you know other communities that are below that. When it comes to other areas like St. Catharines, Niagara, London, they're experiencing negligible or even in some cases negative job growth since 2008-09. What has happened in these communities? Are, are bigger companies overlooking these centers? Well, one thing, um, so Hamilton is actually a pretty good example of this, is that being near um, the centers of economic activity, you know, you think about the kind of quote unquote superstar cities in North America, Toronto being one of them, um, being close to them is a big advantage because especially with housing prices in, in the GTA, um, it's, there are a lot of people who have to, uh, you know, as they say, drive till they qualify, uh, which means that a lot of people who might have bought a house in Toronto 10 years ago or 15 years ago have now uh, decided to move to Hamilton or, you know, further out uh, outside of the uh, of the GTA and commute in. So so certainly places that have traditionally relied on manufacturing quite a bit, like Oshawa, Hamilton, that are close to the GTA, um, the, the decline in manufacturing hasn't hit them as hard because they've been able to capitalize on being near Toronto. Um, whereas you think about a place like Thunder Bay, um, and they don't really have that built-in advantage. So it, it makes it all the more challenging when you've got decline in manufacturing and you can't take advantage of simply being by a big economic magnet. The report identifies a tale of two Ontarios when it comes to population change and job creation. Are, are we are we dealing with uh, a have and have not kind of province? Well, to a large extent, we are. Um, if you think about the, the size of southwestern Ontario, southwestern Ontario is big enough to be a province, and a lot of southwestern Ontario has had a really uh, has had some challenges. Uh, you think about non-CMA, in other words, uh, like smaller than cities um, areas of, of Ontario. That's you know that's a couple of million people um, that have seen a nearly ten percent decline in in um, employment between two thousand eight two thousand nineteen. And again, that's before we talk about uh, what's happened over the last uh, 18 or so months or 20 months with COVID. Um, so yes, there certainly is a big um, divide within Ontario. And it's the, one of the reasons why we, we've done this and similar reports uh, several times now is to just highlight that you know when, when you look at the overall economic picture, because the GTA is so large and Ontario and Ottawa is reasonably large as well, um, it's easy to look at the overall statistics and say, hey, you know, there's there's a lot of job growth. But when you drill down and look at big parts of the province, big components of the province, um, they're just not really reflecting that growth. It's a compelling analysis. You can check out the details online at FraserInstitute.org. Steve, thanks for the time today. Thank you for having me. Steve LaFleur is a senior policy analyst with the Fraser Institute. Again, online, pretty compelling stuff uh, when you go to FraserInstitute.org and check out the reports. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Bank of Canada has spent years looking at whether to introduce a digital currency, but so far, nothing has materialized. How close are we to having a digital loony? Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Moshe. Good morning. So is a digital loony on the horizon or is this still a pipe dream at this point? It's a pipe dream. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it a pipe dream? Um, You know, in order for for the bank to be able to issue a digital loony, it's going to have to have wide take-up. 
And so it's kind of one of those chicken and the egg sorts of arguments that until it has wide take up, it's not going to issue it, but it's not going to issue it unless it has wide take up. And so um, no one's going to take it up until it's issued. And so we're kind of caught in this endless loop here that we're not using digital currencies and other aspects of our lives, you know, Bitcoin and things like that, wide enough for the bank to feel confident that if they issued a digital currency, it would be used or accepted. So what kind of take up number would we have to see? I don't know that they're going to look for necessarily a particular percentage, but I, I can probably say that whatever that number is, it's it's not even close to happening yet, right? If you think about just the basics of how our transaction systems work, right? Think about how many businesses would have to have some sort of capacity to accept digital currency. Think of how many people would have to be using digital currency as a means of buying things right now. And so right now, you know, if you look at kind of Bitcoin, which is like the template that most central banks would want to look at, that's barely used as like a speculative sort of um, currency. And it's being used a little more mainstream now. But, you know, we're still not seeing things like uh, people being paid in Bitcoin or, um, you know, services being paid for or supplies being ordered in Bitcoin. So it, it's, it's so far down the line at this point uh, that I, I don't think there's any confidence that the central bank would want to engage with it. What are people using uh, things like Bitcoin for? Well, I mean, it started off for mostly illegal things, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it kind of started off in the black market. Um, I, you know, there's a story of an athlete who wanted to be paid in Bitcoin. There's a few people who will uh, accept Bitcoin as payment for services, mostly because they're speculating that Bitcoin is like a one-way uh, you know, upward investment, the way we thought like housing was always the one-way upward investment. So it, it, it's kind of there at the margins. It's just you know, you're not being paid in Bitcoin. Nobody at CHML is being paid in that. No one in academia is being paid in Bitcoin. Like it's just, it, it's so far from the mainstream that it's merely kind of isolated incidents where it's it's almost kind of funny to be paid in Bitcoin rather than this is legitimate transactions and that's the way that we're negotiating payment. Even though this might remain a pipe dream at this point, has the pandemic accelerated or decelerated any kind of talk about a digital currency in Canada? I guess if I'm going to point in one direction, it's, it's accelerated. So one of the, the things that a lot of us have probably seen is that we're really not using hard cash anymore, right? We're using uh, Apple Pay or we're using our you know Google wallets or um, we're, we're using debit cards and credit cards, right? The actual idea, you know, it, it, to me, it reminds me of my grandparents carrying around like a wad of cash <laughs> in their pocket uh, and using that to pay for everything. Uh, that sort of thing has disappeared, and, and the pandemic has probably sped up that deterioration of, of cash usage um, merely because it's just not safe to be passing around coins to, to people and having it touched hundreds of times. Even before the pandemic, there were always these studies that would show up that talked about, you know, like how much fecal matter was was on a coin or something. And, you know, if you, if you read the numbers, it was, it was so scary that it, it almost made you just want to move towards digital. But there's still a way to go between debit cards and digital currency. So what is the difference between a debit card and when we look, at, you know, on our smartphone to our bank statement, all those numbers mean something, but really it's virtual money unless you have it in your hand. What's the difference between that? and a digital currency? So the debit card is really the manifestation of your cash, right? So in theory, like I said, you know, with my grandparents, they would have carried around their, their cash uh, in their pocket or in their, their purse. Um, over time, technology advanced that just said, look, rather than you having to carry huge amounts of cash, why don't we just say that this card represents 
the cash that you now no longer have to carry around. And so the evolution of things like tap then just became that instead of having to actually swipe it and type in a PIN number, now you can just touch it and we will accept that that card represents actual cash. A digital currency is going to have a lot of similar sort of features in that we're not going to actually have cash to touch, um, but the way that it would be issued would be slightly different. Right now what happens is, say, the Bank of Canada issues a a dollar coin, uh, and then as that coin gets passed around and deposited into banks, it generates new cash in the process. Um, A digital currency might not have that capacity to create new currency, depending on how it's issued and, and how the Bank of Canada wants to try and control it. One more minute with Moshe Landers, Senior Economics Lecturer at Concordia University. Are any other countries around the world looking at a digital currency? Looking, yeah, uh, but I don't think that anyone's uh, you know that far down the line either. The the thought is that Progressive Sweden uh, is the one that's maybe the closest, but to say that they're close uh, is is a relative term. So it, it's probably not something whose time is going to come in twenty twenty two. And I think that we still have a few Greek letters worth of variants to go through. <laughs> oh no, this might speed up the process <laughs> that we that we consider. Hey, maybe we need to start looking at this a little more seriously. Yeah, and is the volunteer uh, the volatility of cryptocurrency? Does that play a big part in all this? For sure. And so right now, what you want in any currency, physical or otherwise, is stability, right? I need to know that at the end of this year, my loonie is going to buy approximately what it could buy at the beginning of this year. And if the amount that it could buy is gyrating wildly, that's going to make me lose confidence in money. I'm not going to want to use it. And I'm going to start looking for things like bartering as a way to try and settle my bills. Um, if, if Bitcoin continues to dry rate like this, then the Bank of Canada is going to say, see, the world isn't quite ready yet for mainstream digital currencies, so let's hold off on that because we don't want to introduce that into Canadian purchasing behavior. Great explanation. Moshe, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Anytime. That's Moshe Lander, Senior Economics Lecturer at Concordia University, chiming in about a digital currency and, in his words, still a pipe dream at this point in this country. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this is an interesting development if you've been following the sports world and positive COVID cases in places like the NHL and NBA. Uh, This move has drawn a lot of criticism, and that is Novak Djokovic, he's the world's number one tennis player, is being allowed to play in the Australian Open after the nine-time champion received a medical exemption from being vaccinated against coronavirus. Now, we heard uh, just this morning from Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who says the Serbian athlete won't be allowed in the country if he provides insufficient evidence to support his vaccination status. If he's not vaccinated, he must provide acceptable proof that he cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons um, and to be able to access the same travel arrangements as fully vaccinated travellers. If that evidence is insufficient, then he won't be treated any different to anyone else and he'll be on the next plane home. Scott Morrison playing a little serve and volley uh, with Novak Djokovic. What's going to happen? Well, let's see. Uh, Cindy Boren is a sports reporter with The Washington Post and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning. Well, this story has certainly grabbed the attention of many. What do you make of Djokovic's exemption? Uh, Well, it's impossible to know. This is a confidential process. The Australians say that it was done um, by an independent panel, two independent panels, uh, Djokovic has always kind of um, uh, thumbed his nose at, at vaccination uh, protocols, coronavirus protocols. You will recall he had the tournament in 
in his homeland uh, almost two years ago, and, and they observed no protocols. Almost everyone in it came down with the virus. That was the Delta variant. Um, he hasn't really detailed why he doesn't doesn't obtain the vaccination, uh, other than he seemed to kind of indicate that he's uh, opposed to vaccinations of any sort. I mean, it could have been as simple as the fact that he had the virus. Um, you would think he would say that to kind of stem the flow of criticism that's coming his way now, because it's a firestorm storm that he's in the middle of. Many people criticizing Australian Open officials for allowing him to play. Is the criticism warranted or are they following the correct protocol? Well, the problem is that the, the people who granted the exemption um, are in the state of Victoria and the people who approve visas and international travel um, protocols it, it is that those are the federal government officials. So you've got those two sides at odds over this. Um, you've got a country that's been in had some pretty strict lockdowns over the past two years. Um, outraged, really, that somebody comes in for granted the most important international sports event of the year in Australia, I would say. And, uh, you know, it it's it's just setting everyone. It's just setting the wrong tone for everyone. And you can compound that with the fact that Djokovic isn't always the most popular player, period. You know, he's had some tantrums on the court so he doesn't get a lot of of uh it, it, people don't really cut him a lot of slack and i would also say that that now the tennis official uh, craig tiley the head of tennis australia has thrown thrown the ball back in in jo- djokovic's court so to speak uh by saying you know he should come out and say what's going on why he was granted the exemption why he deserves special treatment so, you know, it, it's kind of up to Djokovic now. So far, he hasn't said anything. Cindy Boren is a sports reporter with The Washington Post, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, whether you're a tennis fan or not, most people probably realize that Djokovic is one of the world's finest players. There is also a love-hate relationship when it comes to the fans. What do you mm-hmm. think the fan reaction is going to be like when he does step onto uh, the court? Well, it's 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 going to be... It's, it's impossible to know just because he's going to be pursuing a, a, a tennis record, the 21st Grand Slam that will break his tie with Rafael Nadal and, and Roger Federer if he can win. Um, it, he's won the tournament nine times. He's the defending champion. He should be popular. But, you know, when people have sacrificed, individuals have sacrificed so much during the coronavirus pandemic, it, the fact that somebody can just waltz in like this is really turning them off. And I don't know how how warmly he will be received in Melbourne. I just don't I just don't think we know yet. I think it, it he has the power to kind of take some of the edge off of this now. But it, given his past comments about his reluctance uh, where vaccines and protocols are concerned, it seems as if it's just sort of a personal feeling and not really any kind of medical reasoning. If but, no, if, but I don't know. Yeah, if Novak wasn't the world's number one ranked tennis player, let's say he was ranked, I don't know, <laughs> a, a hundredth, and he wasn't on the verge of becoming the men's all-time Grand Slam champ, would this even be a discussion? Would he even be getting this exemption? Probably not. <laughs> um, you know, this is the guy This is the guy who, who makes makes the headlines from the Australian Open, who elevates it to 
the front pages of, of newspapers and websites around the world. This is a global, global event. Uh, and, you know, if he's, I don't know, Mr. Number 100 and, you know, just kind of showing up on his own in Australia, he probably doesn't have much luck getting into the country, frankly. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, Novak Djokovic obviously will be there. Rafael Nadal will be there. He's also won 20 majors. Roger Federer won't. He's just had knee surgery again. Mm-hmm. It seems like Djokovic is going to win number 21. Does anyone stand in his way? Nadal, of course. Um, and there are others. You know, Medvedev is a very good player. Um, I mean, there are there are up-and-coming men on the, on the tour, and you will recall that, you know, Djokovic... Um, didn't exactly succeed in winning number 21 last fall in, in the finale. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that, that it will be quite the cakewalk that perhaps he thinks it will be. Should be interesting to watch. It always is. Cindy, thanks for the time and enjoy the tournament. Thank you. You too. And as Cindy Boren, sports reporter, Washington Post, the Australian Open at Melbourne Park will kick off on January the 17th. And it is going to be interesting to watch. Um, if if this medical exemption is in fact legit, whether or not Djokovic comes out and says why he's been given this exemption, the fan reaction, if he's allowed to play, the fan reaction will be extremely interesting because there is a, a huge love-hate relationship with him. I think the respect is there in him being one of the all-time greats, and I think the fans really love uh, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer, I mean, two fan favorites. And so it's almost as if Djokovic is like the Darth Vader of the tennis world and is coming to get, uh, you know, bringing the Death Star and and, and winning tournaments. But uh, heck of a tennis player, that is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.